This is gonna be the follow-up, uh, the part two of Dr. Anthony Chafee. The first one was where he went into the plants, the negative side of plants, and this we're gonna dive into those benefits of meat, how we should be eating, the uh, even the MTHFR, which is something that's really important to me. And Dr. Chafee really lays it out uh, with a lot of interesting supporting facts. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Help, help me now move to the proponents and kind of those big questions around carnivore, like what about the lack of fiber? What about the gut microbiome? What should we be eating as far as uh, some sort of an, a hierarchy? Because, you know, Dr. Shafi, what we're trying to do is build out a localized, resilient food system that is nutrient-dense. So we have to support agriculture in a way that provides food, right, That for our locale. So help me address some of those concerns, the fiber, the microbiome, and the hierarchy of of meats that, you know, I'm in central Arkansas. What can we focus on to have this prosperity diet in your opinion? So, well, I mean, obviously the, the issue with fiber is that it was never actually proven that it was any good for us in the first place. It was argued that we should have it in the 1980s because everyone started getting constipated and we started getting fat. It was all about fat busters and all that sort of stuff because in 1977, the USDA declared that saturated fat and cholesterol cause heart disease. And the McGovern report came out and said the same thing. The problem with that is that the people that, well, the head of the USDA was actually on the payroll of the sugar companies and he was bought and paid for and he was paid to do that. So that was actually published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2016. They published actual internal memos from the sugar companies back in the 60s detailing how they paid off three Harvard professors to falsify data and publish fraudulent studies to make it appear as if cholesterol caused heart disease when it was really sugar or was likely sugar. And there was studies showing that there was a strong correlation with sugar and heart disease. And uh, and then to say that sugar was safe, that was what they, they concluded in there. There was just an empty calorie in itself, it's no problem. And one of those professors, now they didn't disclose that, by the way. They never disclosed it, they, that that was being funded by the sugar companies, which is illegal and unethical. One of those professors was named head of the USDA, and it was he who authored and published that 1977 USDA declaration. So we know that's fraud. We know that's that's uh, con and bribery. So you throw it out. Anytime you have something like that, you just throw it out. You have something that's known fraud, you throw it out and you start over. Um, but in the 1980s, we didn't know that at the time. And so people stopped eating fat and they're like, oh, got to get rid of fat. Well, fat actually drives your digestion. Fat is actually what lubricates things and keeps your stool soft, it is the excess fat that you can't absorb. And so now all of a sudden everyone's getting constipated. And they're also getting fat, by the way. People started getting weight dramatically. The obesity rate was only around 
1980, and it sort of increased dramatically after that. Now it's 42 percent. A hundred years ago, it was 1.1.2 percent, very 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 low. So it it dramatically rose after that that report saying don't eat fat. It makes you fat, gives you heart disease. Just the opposite. The heart disease rate has tripled since the 1980s. And and some misleading people will try to mislead you and divert and say, well, the mortality rate, cardiovascular mortality rate, um, actually peaked in the 1960s and started going down after the 70s, right in time for these these uh, these measures with cholesterol. That's not what we said. We said the rate of heart disease. That's gone up. People having first-time heart attacks is going up. It's just they're surviving because we have open-heart surgery. We have bypass surgery. We have stenting. We have uh, early detection. People are taking aspirin. They've stopped smoking. And so there are a lot of different things that we change. And we have better interventions. You can have a clot. We can send up a little wire up there, pull out that clot, put in a stent, and you don't die that day. And you don't die six months from now when, you're, when your heart stops working because it's so damaged or you have a stroke and you can go up, pull that out or give a clot busting drug, right? So we have better interventions now that save people's lives, but more people are having their first heart attack than they were in the 1980s, right? But we've reduced cholesterol. We've put, put on cholesterol lowering medications. We've stopped eating meat. We've stopped smoking. We've started doing all these good things. Heart disease is going up. So we know that's wrong. But in the 80s, they didn't and everyone's getting constipated. And I remember this as a kid, actually. They're saying, like, well, you should eat fiber because it's bulking and it, it works with your with your gut to use peristalsis to move things through. But why didn't we need that before 1986? You know? Um, did our just entire digestion tract as a species change while we were alive? I don't, I don't think so. Um, so... You never really needed fiber. And that was another argument they made for fiber is that uh, you should eat a lot of plants, you should eat a lot of vegetables because they have fiber, and so you don't have really any nutrition in it. It's just like eating a plastic bag. It has no calories. It has no nutrients, and but it feels like you're full because it has bulk to it. And so that'll stretch out your stomach. It will release a hormone called leptin, and your brain will say, oh, we're full no problem. And there was something called the celery diet, which is funny because they would just, they said it actually takes more energy and more calories to process, digest, and pass celery than you actually get from the celery. So you can eat as much celery as you want and you'll just have negative calories. You'll just be losing this. Never happened. Never worked. You know, people were miserable. They were sick. They were, they were bloated. They were hungry as hell and were not happy. Um, and people were just getting fatter and fatter and sicker and sicker. So that was the argument with fiber. And since then, there have been a number of studies. Not all of them are great. I've read a lot of these things. I've had people say, well, what about this meta-analysis? And meta-analysis sounds really strong. But if you have a lot of really garbage studies that don't really show much, and you put them in a meta-analysis, it's garbage in, garbage out. You, you put in a bunch of garbage, and then your result is going to be garbage as well. So none of these things are, are very high quality evidence. And, and some of these things that would show like, well, it reduces uh, blood pressure. And so I was like, okay. So I went through, you know, had like 30 studies in this meta-analysis. I just went through, you know, just three at random. They all had, you know, they dropped blood pressure by like 1.2 points. It's like, okay, 
technically, yes, you've dropped blood pressure, but it's like it's really not anything to write home about. Um, you also have to think about what the mechanism of what what fiber does in your body. You cannot break it down. No vertebrate animal can break down fiber. None. Herbivores that eat fiber, they actually cultivate bacteria that eat the fiber and actually produce as waste fat and protein, right? We can't do that anymore, which is actually further evidence that we're not supposed to be eating it because other animals can. All the primates can, like gorillas. People say, gorillas just eat green leaves and they get all this protein. No, no, no. It's, it's the bacteria. They can break down fiber with their bacteria and they absorb fat and protein. We can't do that. We need to eat the gorilla and get his fat and protein right? That's how we survive. And so when you eat fiber, you can't really do anything with it. It actually forms a lattice and it actually form barrier protection. It can actually stop you from absorbing about 30% of what you're eating. Okay. Well, if you're eating a lot of high octane crap and a lot of processed foods and sugars and carbs and other sorts of plant toxins that aren't great for you, sure. Reducing that by 30% is a great idea, right? But if you're eating that with meat, which is nearly 100% bioavailable, perfect nutrition, no toxins. You don't want that. You don't want to delay that. And there are other, other things in plants that actually delay that stop you from absorbing things and then binding nutrients, blocking your, your enzymes to break things down and so on. But just with fiber, it, it's never really been shown convincingly that this is something that's actually good for us. It's been pretty garbage studies that have shown maybe a bit of help, but when compared to eating a standard American diet, which is by all accounts garbage. And so if you're reducing your absorption of that garbage, you get an improvement. Great. They're not doing that with people like myself who aren't eating fiber because they're only eating meat and you don't need fiber. So I don't think it's going to cause an improvement for me. Now, there are other studies that have shown in people that were symptomatically constipated had painful bloating, um, you know, bleeding when they passed stools, and, um, and just difficult symptomatic constipation. Um, they took them and they split them up into four groups. They said, okay, you keep eating the same amount of fiber, you increase fiber, you decrease fiber, and you guys eliminate fiber completely. And the results were the opposite of what everyone would have guessed, which is people who stayed the same stayed the same, and people who increased fiber actually got worse. People who reduced fiber got better. People who eliminated fiber completely resolved their symptoms, completely, okay? And there are studies with uh, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis showing that if you remove carbohydrates and fiber, you can keep people in remission up to 51 months without medication just by removing fiber and carbohydrates. So is it the carbohydrates? Is it the fiber? Is it something that comes with both? Don't really know, but that's an interesting study. And, and, uh, and the list goes on. There's actually a study with over 2,000 patients that actually was shown that the people, the high fiber group, actually died more often of heart disease. Don't know what the mechanism there is, but that's the association. So that's 2,000 people, and that is, uh, it was a long-term large study, and it showed that the more fiber people ate, the more likely they were to die of a heart attack or a stroke. So I don't think you need fiber. There's also another, other studies that show a strong correlation between increased fiber and increased bowel motions and colon disease called diverticulosis. So, you know, it, does this help you? Why would, why would it help you? It's something that we can't absorb, we can't utilize, 
and is difficult for us to process. No animal eats things that they can't digest. Why, why would they? Right? Why would you eat something if you can't even use it or digest it? The animals that eat fiber can use fiber. We can't, so we shouldn't be using it. There, is no, there are no animals that I, that I know of that eat fiber that cannot process fiber at all. Right? There, it just doesn't exist. So uh, I don't think that's something that we should eat. As to the microbiome, well, that's simple. There are studies with the Inuit that actually show that just eating meat gives you the best microbiome you could possibly get. So, um, yeah, so just eat meat. When, if you're eating what you're designed to eat, your body's going to work the way it's designed to work. We have a symbiotic relationship with these microbes, our oral biome, our gut biome. These are all things that we've been living with as a species forever. And so what you eat, your biome eats, your oral biome eats. And if you're eating just meat, if you're eating what you're supposed to eat, you're going to have healthy white teeth that don't get cavities, don't get rot. And that's why animals in the wild don't rot out their teeth. The Maasai and the Native Americans, the Native Australians, when Westerners came there, and there's all these accounts of these very dark-skinned people with bright white teeth. They don't have toothbrushes. They don't have dentists, certainly not in the 1600s. And, uh, and yet, why did they still have their teeth? Why is it that before the agricultural revolution, sometimes the only remains of a, a skeleton that you had was the teeth, and they were perfect, perfectly formed, no cavities, no problems. Then 10,000 years ago, hard line, the skeletons and the, uh, the, the teeth of the skeletons were rotten, misformed, crooked, and and diseased right because you're eating something you're not supposed to eat you're going to cultivate bacteria that you're not supposed to cultivate and it's going to damage your enamel it's going to damage your teeth same thing goes for your gut if you're eating what you're supposed to eat you're going to have the gut biome that you're supposed to have as evidenced by the inuit who are eating what there's if they're eating only meat they uh have the gut biome they're supposed to have and that makes sense because what we are supposed to eat that's going to feed our gut biome and you know, if that's if that is indeed our optimal diet, we should get our optimal microbiome from that, and we do. Well, let me let let's break into the meat. I think that that that's great, and I personally have experienced uh, long stretches of carnivore, and it is the best that I've felt. And there there has been no constipation ever when I have gone on large. Mm-hmm large time periods of strictly carnivore. So I, I can attest to that. And the fiber things that the, I mean, just read the, the literature. I, I mean, it's there. It's not, it's not really that hidden if you, you try to look. On meat, so we are an agrarian state. Um, we are home to Tyson, you know, so chicken central. Um, and I really want to understand that chicken component from where you are and then go into what, how you would rank the meat, please. The, hmm. I I have come to the conclusion I feel like eggs and bone broth are like superfoods, but that chicken muscle meat is not. Uh, I, I don't even know that we should be eating it. And so I, I really wanted you to go into that from your perspective. And uh, should we be eating chicken? Well, it it's not as ideal as, as other things, especially like the ruminant animals like the ruminant meat like cows and and bison or venison sheep things like that and that's actually something that that dr salisbury noticed in the 1800s was that beef was a number one 
lamb was a distant second. So if you're going to eat red meat, you, know, you want to go for beef. So they, they sort of rank that out. If you go down and look at the nutritional rankings of these things, they are very different. And then, but, but a bigger difference comes from how that animal is raised. And so a big problem with, with chickens these days is that they're fed a lot of things that they didn't grow up eating, that they're not designed to eat. And so the monogastrics, the things there's only one stomach, obviously the ruminants have like four barrel chamber stomachs and it's, and they can, they can deal with things that, um, they, they weren't necessarily designed to eat as, as well. So, uh, and I even saw a report, uh, or an article saying that they could, they could, uh, process and, and, and excrete, uh, glyphosate, you know, like the roundup sort of, uh, uh, roundup, uh, herbicide, right? So it was you know, it was probably really bad for us. And it seems that that uh, if cows eat that, they can actually detoxify it and, and eliminate it. And so it doesn't get in the meat, whereas other animals, it can, or at least that suggested that they can. So chickens are sort of in that category. There's monogastric that they're, they're getting fed chicken and, or corn and soy, and, and that's not what they're designed to eat. And so, you know, soy can have a whole bunch of things that they're not supposed to have. They have a lot of linoleic acid and omega-6s, which you need some of, it's an essential nutrient, but you only need a small amount of it. And more than that can cause significant harm. And so a lot of, a lot of indigenous populations that are lean and strong and have very low rates of disease, they seem to have linoleic acid consumption that doesn't go above 2%. And that seems to be pretty consistent in these, in these populations. Even if they eat a very diet, either very heavily meat-based, very, very fat-based, uh, maybe coconut uh, milk and things like that, or uh, even even uh, tribe in Papua New Guinea that actually ate a lot of yams, um, obviously not their native uh, cuisine, that, because that's that's a new world uh, plant that got got taken there by the by the um, Europeans, but they still had a very low level of of omega sixes and they had a low rate of disease as well. So interesting, but in any case, when animals are being fed something they're not designed to eat, and they're feeding fed a bunch of plants that they're not designed to eat in particular, they're going to build up things that aren't necessarily supposed to be there either. So chicken and pork um, and even even fish that are fed grains and soy and corn and things like that, they'll build up a lot of linoleic acid in their fat. So they'll have a high omega-6 content in their fat. And then we eat their fat and it's like we're eating that those seed oils by proxy. So that can be a problem. Eggs are fantastic. They, they, I mean, I would agree they're like a superfood that has all the, the building blocks and nutrients that you need to form a new life. And so obviously that's all the building blocks for life. It's a perfect protein. It has all the amino acids in the right proportions that we need them. Um, but again, depending on what the, the, the chicken is fed, that, that egg is going to be better or worse for you. So there was, I can't remember the, the gentleman's name, but he does like a lot of big regenerative farming in America. And he was talking about the average USDA egg uh, is reported to have about 41 milligrams of folate. But his regeneratively raised, pasture-raised chickens had over 1,000 milligrams of folate. So massive difference, really, you know, 20, 25 times the amount of at least that micronutrient. And... We do know that grass-fed and finished, regeneratively raised cows um, have four to five times the amount of micronutrients 
than you know just Safeway beef would. Uh, but at the same time, Safeway beef is great. It has everything you need really in the proportion that you need it. And most people will do fabulously well on that. And so I would sort of rank it like that. I'd have your ruminants up at the top for sure, because they can weed out and, and eliminate out more of these plant toxins and industrial toxins that we don't want. So they're a great filter for us. And then you get down into the monogastrics like pork, chicken, eggs, um, and fish, wild-caught fish. Now, if those are pasture-raised, sort of raised in their natural environment, and wild-caught fish, those are much better. I would still rank ruminants above that, though. Um, and then below all that would be the factory-farmed chicken and pork and eggs. And, and, and just never eat farmed fish. I just never eat those. Those are, those are not good for you. And, um, you know, dairy is great, but it's some people can have a problem with it because the casein can be pro-inflammatory. So especially people with autoimmune issues and inflammatory diseases, they tend to need to avoid uh, things like dairy just because they're a bit more inflammatory as well. I'm glad you threw in the dairy. I, I, I should have asked about that. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I do think there's a considerable difference between raw and, uh, you know, pasteurized and commercial dairy oh, there too. Yeah. For, for everybody, but you brought up folate specifically, and so I wanted to get your opinion on, so what, I, I have got multiple MTHFR gene variations, and so I, I'm going, yeah. I, since I do, I know my son does, right, and so we have that whole cancer mm -hmm. uh, play there, and knowing that like his formula we had, because I didn't know anything going to this, the rice cereal that he had, all the, the fortified crap, we were pouring folic acid in him, right? So the synthetic version of folate that we are told to prevent spina bifida and all, all these neural defects. I now know that I was poisoning him by putting that in there. What I have also heard is I believe like Dave Asprey and Paul Saladino also have the MTHFR uh, gene mm -hmm. variation. And so I'm putting that together. And then if you take like what Chris Master John says about it's a riboflavin deficiency, how do we make sure that we get the adequate B vitamins and how are people with this MTHFR gene variations doing on carnivore, uh, especially long-term? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very good question. I mean, that that's one thing when people ask me what they should test and things like that on a carnivore diet, usually nothing unless you have a problem. But one thing I do think is, is valuable is, is checking for folate. And if you don't know if you're MTHFR, if you do know your MTHFR, then you, you will need more folate, um, but not everybody knows that. And so check your folate. If that's low and you've just been eating a lot of red meat, then okay, well, for whatever reason, you're not getting enough. And, um, but the, you know, the simple, simple solution is you just eat liver a couple times a week because there's a lot more liver in, uh, or a lot more folate in liver. And so it, that, that's basically supplements for carnivores is just uh, a bit of organs because those are so nutrient dense that uh, that can actually be a problem. If you eat too much of these things, you can actually get an overload of the fat soluble vitamins or, or metals such as copper and, uh, and the fat soluble vitamins such as vitamin A. So you can actually get a problem with that. So you still want to keep it in proportion. You still don't want to overdo it. So remember that if you go hunting and you take down a buffalo, it has meat on it that's going to last you two years and it has one liver. Right. So just to keep that in mind, I've eaten, I mean, not everybody needs that. Most people don't. I mean, I haven't eaten, I've eaten liver, I think, I think the count is six times in the last decade. 
So not that much. And, um, and I've been carnivore for six years now. And uh, my folate's fine, but not everyone's is. And so if you're, if you're in that category, if you have the MTHFR, you're going to be in that category. You need to eat liver, not even all that much, just a bit, uh, you know, two, three times a week. Just have that in your diet and, and you should be fine. And so the people that I've, that I've seen um, that have had problems and realized that they were low folate, um, they just added in chicken liver or beef liver. Some, some like to avoid or mix it up because uh, beef liver can have a lot of copper. And so maybe they'll have beef liver sometimes and they'll just do chicken liver other times. But just having uh, some sort of animal liver two to three times a week takes care of that. I mean, you should be able to get everything you need just from eating meat. That's what we're designed for. We're not eating wild animals anymore. You know, the equivalent would be, you know, getting venison or a regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cow, which will have a lot more folate in it, just like, you know, the eggs that we were talking about for 20-some times the amount of folate in it. So you're going to be fine if you're eating that sort of natural thing. Not everyone has access to that. Most people don't. And so if you don't, you just go to the next bar up, which is uh, organs. Awesome. Great. And then uh, an, a convenience there, are you kind of pro or anti the uh, desiccated organs? Well, if people, if, if people need them and I mean, they should just sort of get used to or, or learn how to cook liver, you know, like, it's just, it's easier. It's a lot cheaper. And, uh, and it actually, it actually doesn't taste bad. I, I've, I've noticed it's sort of like, like seared ahi. Like if you just sear liver real quick, it, and, and keep it raw in the middle, it's, it's so much better. I actually like it. It actually tastes good. But if it's cooked all the way through, no thank you. I don't need that shoe leather. But uh, if you just sear the outside and keep the inside raw, it actually tastes good. Um, I did some some things where I took uh, like strips of, of liver, very thin, and I put a bit of salt on it, put it on drying racks because I, I like to dry out my steaks. It sort of concentrates the flavor, helps them brown better. And so I got some liver once and I was like, Let's try it with that. Um, the next day, it sort of dried out a bit and the salt soaked in. I was like, well, that actually tastes good. And I had like a whole tray of it. So I sort of had a bit every day. After about four days, they turned like a lot more dry and sort of gummy. They had like the consistency of like a gummy bear. And like that was something that I, I sort of missed was that tactile sort of gummy candy sort of thing. And all of a sudden, I had this like meat gummy. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I, was like, I just loved them. And actually, I was just like, this is good. And I just like ate, ate a bunch of them. Um, but, you, you know, your body even tells you. Your body sort of tells you they taste really good because your body wants those nutrients. But uh, eventually, your body just says, yeah, okay, that's enough. And I just naturally stopped. So I had like sort of four pieces and, and that was it. But uh, so you can, there are things you can do. And I think it's best if you, if you do it like that. Um, but if you can't do that and you're just really fighting against it and you are MTHFR or, or you're a bit deficient for another reason, then yeah, you could, you could do the desiccated liver. But I, I, I think it's, if you, if you're able to sort of just eat it, I, I think it's best to just eat it. I think that's fair. That's a, that's a great answer. One thing I've noticed with like the, uh, the meat based diet, the carnivore is that there's almost a, uh, consciousness that goes around it being more connected to food. And I don't know if that's just because we are relying on another living, uh, you know, a sentient being there, but we have gone down to White Oak Pastures and filmed a documentary with Will Harris and actually Will's uh, coming on the podcast tomorrow. The nice. 
support for regenerative agriculture by the carnivore community is a beautiful, beautiful thing that I am really hoping that we can keep keep that train going. Uh, it's like what you went up and did. Uh, I believe her name was Maggie mm-hmm. up in Canada. Like that was a mind blowing story. Like that was so cool. Mm-hmm. How how do you feel we can keep pushing that on? And why is that just so important? But because it surely is to me and our audience. But why is it important to you or for you to see that regenerative movement continue well well for a lot of reasons one it it is better for the animals it's, it gives them a better life and you know we're, we're sort of having a trade we take care of them they take care of us and that and that's how that works you want to give them a good life and a nice sort of more natural life we protect them from the elements we protect them from predators and and we have them you know doing what they're supposed to do which is being out in grass meadows and, and being with other cows and making more cows and uh, but also it makes the the meat more nutritious. It's a, it's a better way of of being a steward of the land. You're not stripping nutrients out of the land. You're actually putting nutrients back in the land, and that actually helps the growth cycle. So more grass grows, that uh, makes longer root stock for the grass, and then so they they cycle around in different pastures, and they come back, and it's grown even more. Um, Alan Savory has actually shown that you can reverse deserts. By doing this, moving animals through bunched and moving like the, like a migrating herd of animals, and it puts it puts things back in the land and and makes it more fertile, more verdant. Plants and animals are the environment, and you need these things living in symbiosis. And you start taking one out of the other and and, and changing something, and and you can damage the earth. So I think it's important from that standpoint. I think it's important from uh, animal welfare point of view. From our point of view, getting more nutrition, and also because we want this to be sustainable, we want this to actually benefit the planet. We don't want to just, you know, drag things down, which is the direction we're going now with 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 large monocrop agriculture. It is actually uh, as as its days are numbered. Unfortunately, we are it's damaging the land. We're losing twenty seven point five billion tons of topsoil a year. That's a vanishing resource. It's only it takes five hundred years to grow a centimeter of that. And we're losing a si- an area the size of Kentucky every single year um, with our current farming practices. You know, we till up a whole field and the rain washes most of it away and the wind blows a lot of it away. This is what happened in the Dust Bowl era in America. It almost turned the middle of America into uh, another Sahara Desert. And that's because of our farming practices. And um, thankfully, we recognized what was going on. We were able to, to sort of stop it. But that that is what can happen. The Sahara Desert actually is a man-made desert, and I think that was from agriculture back in the ancient world. Um, you know, the the pyramids and the Sphinx were actually they took soil samples in the '90s and realized, wow, these weren't desert people; these were actually built in jungles. These were jungle pyramids. That's a jungle Sphinx, and now it's a desert. You know, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, the Persian Empire. You read accounts of the Persian Empire, Gilgamesh, the oldest ever epic, uh, written epic uh, that we have, that describes an area of green, lush grass fields with deer and antelope and all these different sorts of animals and cedar forests and all these sorts of things. That's in modern day Iraq, right? So that's where agriculture was was first invented. And it, it actually strips the land and loses topsoil and and causes deserts 
animals reverse that. So if we want to be as healthy as we possibly can, we need animals and we need to do it right. We need to do it in a way that helps the land. It doesn't hurt the land. The great thing about animals as well is that you can do it on any land. You can do it in the mountains. You can do it in forests. You can do it in rangeland. You can't grow crops in those areas. You can only grow crops yeah. on arable land, which is only 4% of the Earth's surface, including oceans, obviously. Not that much. So rangeland and forest land make up another 25% or so of the Earth's surface, not including oceans. So the majority of land on Earth is rangeland, forest, forest land. You can run animals through all of that. You don't have to clear it to make a field. You can just have animals go through in this natural environment and make that natural environment better. So in order to support a growing population and support it well, and to make people healthy and to make the land healthy and the animals healthy and everything healthy and better, you know, you need to, you need to go to regenerative uh, methods. And I think that that's, uh, that that model is the best to meet all of those demands. Thank you. Thank you for that. I, th um, I agree wholeheartedly, my friend. Thank you for the work that you're putting out. Thank you for the, you're in Australia right now in the middle of the night yes. and you jumped on here with me. Uh, appreciate your time, your wisdom. Uh, where, where can we send people to help benefit you and, and what's next for, for you? Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It was good to, to meet you. So thank you for having me on. Um, well, I, I have social media. I'm on Instagram. It's just Anthony Chafee MD. And I have a YouTube channel by the same by the same description, Anthony Chafee MD. And I put out a lot of videos uh, at least once a week, if not more. And I have a you know sort of a back catalog and everything like that. And I have a podcast just called The Plant Free MD. And that sort of tells everybody not only how to do carnivore, but why why we should do carnivore, why it's important, why it helps us, the science behind it. I speak with people like Professor Seafried and other uh, you know, top researchers and scientists in various fields that, that I think all add to the story of what we really should be eating and why. And so I go through that in the podcast and on the YouTube channel as well. And uh, yeah, Twitter, Anthony underscore Chafee and, and you know, other, other sort of little things, but people can find me through, through those other means of social media. I'm on Rumble as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, all amazing resources. You've you've uh, added so much value. Uh, are you staying in Australia or are you coming back to the States? Uh, I think eventually I'll come back to the States. You know, the more I travel, the more I appreciate it in America. So, you know, it's fun here and I really like it and I like my work that I'm doing here. But, um, I, you know, America is my home. It's always going to be my home. I have um, my family's been in America since the 1500s. So it's just like that's that's where I'm from. Um, yeah, I've got founding fathers on both sides. I've got, um, you know, both sides have people on the Mayflower and ancestors and things like that. And so um, that's, yeah, that's my home. And so I want to go and, and, you know, live in my home, be around my family. And, you know, uh, there, there are weird things happening. And uh, I also sort of feel a, a duty to get back and, and maybe, you know, help out and, and make it not go to hell like people are trying to do. Amen. That is why we are sitting here, my friend. It's what you just said there in those last few seconds is exactly what the mission that, that we're on is all about, buddy. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. Again, the podcast is one of my favorite things in that I get to meet with people like Dr. Chafee. I think that these 
wisdom, the different views, uh, something to just give us something to talk about, to think about and question. That way it can sow prosperity in our own lives, in our own communities, based on just questioning and the cause and effect. So please check out, like, share, subscribe, do all the things to help get the Sowing Prosperity message out. Thank you for listening to the Sowing Prosperity Podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.